and welcome to Pete's Percussion Podcast. I'm your host, Pete Zambito, and we're here with episode 370 and part two of our annual Percussive Arts Society International Convention Preview. Let's get right to it. Hopefully you've caught part one of the preview yesterday, where we interviewed five folks, Jen Fong, Tim Fierst, Sean Medovetsky, Gifford Howarth, and Karen Yu. All of those folks are presenting on Thursday's portion of PASIC this year. Today, we'll get to three guests who are presenting on the Friday and Saturday days of PASIC. So let's hear from them. First up is Corey Hills. Corey is a freelance percussionist based in Los Angeles who currently runs an organization called Percussive Storytelling. You'll hear more about the entirety of this in his full interview, but at PASIC, he'll be presenting an interactive drumming committee showcase concert at 11 a.m. Friday in room 209, where he'll present his show, Frankie the Otter. Here's Corey talking about the genesis of percussion storytelling and his presentation. It's part of the Interactive Drumming Committee a showcase concert through them, and it's presenting a program of mine called Frankie the Otter. Um, I'm not bringing an otter. Well, I am. It's just, it's stuffed. It's, it's not a real otter. Uh, Can you well, imagine that's just... the, the insurance for PAS to bring like a live otter inside the exhibition hall? That would be... Also, imagine the stories for decades after about yeah. the guy Do you who brought the otter. Remember that guy who brought an otter? <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, it's called Frankie the Otter. And I have to back up to tell you a bit about what it is. It's part mm-hmm. of a program of mine called Percussive Storytelling that I created about 15 years ago. And in Percussive Storytelling, I tell stories to kids that I either write or adapt from existing uh, folk tales, multicultural tales from around the world. And I set them to percussion music that I compose. So it's kind of like Peter and the Wolfish, but more in the 21st century or 22nd, wherever the heck we are. It's Thursday. Um, (laughs) Just with a little more of a modern slant and more of a focus on connecting the music to the stories and presenting them to elementary school age children. That's the primary audience. I mean, it works for younger, it works for older, but the core demographic would be elementary age children. So it's perfect for attendees of PASIC because most percussionists have the uh, maturity level of a third grader. So I think it's, a, uh, you know, it, it fits perfectly. Yeah. Most of us never advance past the fourth grade in our minds. Um, yeah. I've been doing this for a long time, but Frankie the Otter specifically is a program I created when um, just about a year or two ago when I was the first ever fellow in children's music at the Fred Rogers Institute. And that's Mr. Mm. Rogers, that guy, yeah, everyone's favorite neighbor. So this fellowship, which was just amazing, granted me access to his archives and I was able to talk to people who worked with him, worked on the show, created characters, and I spent the year sort of doing a deeper dive into the social-emotional learning side of things as compared to just telling stories I liked. Mm -hmm. And Frankie the Otter is the performative result of that. It's a 50-minute show, and it features four stories, a lot of bad jokes, it's kind of like Frankie 
it, Frankie's the main character. And yeah, so it's interactive in terms of the audience gets involved um, by acting out different roles. And it's, uh, I mean, at PASIC, everyone has to pretend to be a kid, obviously. But in reality, I go to these schools and present this show to 500 plus kids at a time. And it's a lot of fun. Uh, yeah, so that's what I'm presenting. It's a kid's show, Friday at 11. If you feel like you've had enough talking about Fulcrum or Rebound or... Which, or the audition process. The for, audition or, process or, or which mallet is five grams heavier than another, then come on yeah. out. And, or if you're just possibly hungover from the night before. It's also... It's also for you. It's also for you. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, uh, in reality, the reason why I, I'm really excited to do this at PASIC, I, I've been, like I said, I've been doing this for 15 years and it's been a bit of a grind, especially getting recognized by the percussion community for being a real form, a real <laughs> thing, as compared to just pandering or playing to kids, right? Right. Um, I believe that there's there's an art there. And so to be given this opportunity to present it, 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 it's awesome because there's so many opportunities outside of percussion that's not being a professor or an orchestral musician. And this is how I do it. And so I'm excited to present that to people because there are a lot of opportunities out there in this area, in education, in early education. So you said this is part of the interactive drumming the interactive drumming committee is who's hosting uh, me. Gotcha. Yeah. So is that typically one, the a group that, that like, I guess drum circles might be the thing that people might be most connects with that committee or is, is it, has it always been kind of included this, you know, the, the theatrical element that you you're including here? I, that is a wonderful question. <laughs> I definitely do not have the answer. I, you know, so I've tried to apply before to other committees and I get thrown in sometimes in, in, in the professional setting. They're like, Oh, so like drum circle type stuff or facilitation. Yeah. And it's not that mm -hmm. because the kids and I, when we work together, we write our own children's stories. We set them to music. We play all these instruments. We compose. So it's not interactive in the call response drum circle kind of way, right. but it is interactive in terms of us kind of getting down on the ground, working together, creating some cool sounds, writing some stories. So I think it is a good fit and I'm happy that they, you know, they extended a, a branch this way. What was kind of the creation of this particular show? Oh, Frank. Okay. So Frankie, the premise is pretty simple. Uh, there's like a tagline. It's a show about friendship, kindness, and the power of community. So that's pretty much the, the by tagline of the show. The setting's simple. Frankie is new to my animal sanctuary, which is basically just a bunch of stuffed animals, mm -hmm. uh, because their habitat was destroyed in a storm. And so they're new. And then on their first, during their first day at the sanctuary, they meet different animals, each animal telling Frankie a different story about their first day to help Frankie feel more uh, comfortable and at ease in this new home. And each of the stories focuses on a different social emotional concept. 
but it's kind of hidden a bit in the dialogue, in the story, because the stories are from all over the world, purposefully done that way because of my research with Mr. Rogers, how he never lectured at you. He -hmm. just presented the stuff, spoke to you as an individual, and let you sort of take it where you wanted to take it. That's where the influence sort of sort of comes from. Um, so yeah, that's that's kind of the setting of the story. And the percussion is my vessel to tell the stories right. or to reach this audience. It's simply the tool I use to do it. One of the things that that I would I would like for you to talk about on on this is kind of what are the skill sets that maybe we are or are not part of a traditional curriculum <laughs> that are that you've developed because of doing this work for the last 15 years <laughs> ah how long do you got <laughs> uh, everything I, I, like i, I uh, i had the most incredible education mm-hmm. I, I can't complain at all um except michael burrett i will complain about how many double laterals I had to continuously play up and down the instrument. Double laterals. I mean, seriously, open fifths. Can we stop with the open fifths? I just, it drives me crazy. I know I had, I had the best education. So I, I, I was so fortunate in all of my studies. However, as I got older and found that my brain, well, actually it was more from early on. I knew I wasn't I didn't want to be an orchestral musician. I knew some of these things I didn't want. Mm-hmm. What I can say though, is as I got older, I realized that we're kind of like teaching to the 2%. We're not teaching to everyone else. So we're, we're telling people that like, it makes the way that we're teaching. It's like you either get an orchestral job or, or a professorial job. And that's what you do. That's 98% of the work, but it's, it's like reverse. I remember doing like looking at stuff one year about 10 years ago and calculating how many people had doctorates who could get the job, but based on, it's like 2%. So we're, we're teaching to this small little thing, which is great because it, in some ways it's great. It, it's, it requires certain skill sets and we must be great at our craft. But when you get out into the real world, there are a ton of jobs. There is a ton of work. It just might not look like how mm-hmm. you're originally told it would look. Right. So a lot of the skills I had, but I hadn't put together. And then in terms of business, uh, a zero, you learn mm-hmm. as you go. Yeah. You write down what didn't work. That's what I did. That relates a little bit to a kind of a follow-up, which is when you're writing these and creating these presentations for the age you're creating it for how much of what you're doing is is editing is 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 pushing something and going huh that was great or nope move on to the next thing how much of that are you doing constantly i did my undergrad at northwestern during the michael burrett era where we existed on coffee and red hots for like four years um, and you know, I was there with like the third coast guys, a bunch of other, I mean, it was amazing. Absolutely yeah. amazing. And so I came out of there knowing how to play everything. Yeah. 
but really wanting something else. And I received an amazing opportunity to go to Australia to study with Vanessa Tomlinson, who is a Steve Schick, former mm-hmm. Steve Schick student, UCSD, experimental art. Mm-hmm. I mean, just, man, this woman is the best of the best. I came out of that program have becoming more of like a, an improviser, focusing more on new music, avant-garde, chamber music, pushing boundaries, and definitely theatrical percussion. That was what I was doing. And from there, I went to Italy for a year for a research fellowship at United Colors of Benetton's Think Center called Institute Fabrica. It's a clothing company, but they Mm -hmm. own a... And this was a year of art for art's sake. I mean, I'm talking like European high fill in the blank. And while it was really fun, this was the year I noticed a big disconnect between my voice and the audience. I was getting a little pissed off because, you know, you'd prep for months for these things. And then like three people would show up, your roommate, usually your boss or your teacher. Right. And then the crazy dude who shows up to everything because there's always one, there's always one. Yeah. And, um, I love sometimes, sometimes you're it. Sometimes you are, sometimes you are the the crazy person or, (laughs) and, and so I would get angry in terms of like, why I avoid, they should, they should, they should. And then I realized years later that I was putting my voice in the wrong place, that they weren't showing up, not because they didn't like me, but because my voice was incorrect for the setting. So when I was there that year, I wrote one story called The Lost Bicycle. Um, It's about a lost bicycle. Good title, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, What do you think happens in the end of the story? Uh... You, you got this. Find the Yes, party. they do. Wow. Yeah. yeah. I know. I'm not exactly JK Rowling over here, but I try my best. But uh-huh. I set it to music. I added percussion and I it 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 was just it was cool. I really, really liked it. Mm. But then I, I sort of tucked it away, came back to the US and you know, was gonna take New York or fill in the blank city by storm as this like crazy new music collaborative percussionist and um that didn't happen (laughs) i did lots of cool things and i still do lots of cool classical things but um what happened was i was in kansas doing my doctorate and i got a call from someone who worked with like a choir in a church Mm -hmm. in osawatomie kansas which is where james not james brown uh Jim Brown did his uprising or something. It, it, yeah. A lot of sketchiness out in that area. Okay. And I, they, they were doing a family day and they wanted some sort of cool music thing. And this person who worked with the choir had heard that I had a story or I had done whatever. I end up going there playing this story. It was cool. Collect you $200. Do not cross go. Mm-hmm. And later that night, I received a, an email from a lawyer that said, we need to talk. That's all it said. Mm-hmm. And, you know, so obviously I'm thinking, what did I do? What did I do? Or they finally caught me or whatever it is. Mm-hmm. Um, and what happened was he was starting an outreach program for Kansas uh, through the arts, using, oh, sorry, using the arts. And his concept was he would pay externally, like directly to me, 
yeah. I would offer the program for free mm-hmm. to go around throughout the state of Kansas to these places that had little to no arts funding or opportunity. So I started in May and by September I had done almost 130 shows. Mm. Wow. Yeah. Um, and it was really funny because starting in May, I only had one show before, right? So I had to mm-hmm. write some more real quick. Yeah. yeah. All this stuff. And this is when every single day when I, I would do multiples on many days, I would take notes about what worked, what didn't work, work, what didn't work. And I sort of, um, I don't know if you've ever read any Malcolm Gladwell. He's sort of a, a pop oh, yeah. psychologist, um, mm-hmm. really great writer, very, very clear thinker. Uh, the tipping point is yeah. what I refer to for this, in that I was in it, like completely in it, because I was performing so much, so fast. Yeah. In a short amount of time, I come out the other side and I go, whoa, I kind of know, I kind of have a thing. Yeah. This is a thing. Mm -hmm. And that was the tipping point for me professionally when I realized, okay, there is something here. People like this, there's Mm -hmm. a need for it. And my voice feels different. Like it works in this setting. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And so then I did more. I recorded a CD that in my friend's kid's room, we ran cables down the hall my other friend did the album artwork and it like landed on the grammy ballot so i don't know how that happened but all of this stuff was very serendipitous timing wise um because all of a sudden this this little program was bigger had some clout behind it right sort of like building a resume it had it had some meat to it the kids are my editors. They will raise hands and say, well, why that? Or, ha ha, you forgot that or this. And I'm like, well, yeah, yeah. this is amazing. Hold on, let me write this down. Yes. And that's why after every show, I would write down what did not work. It's very easy to know what works, but what doesn't work is more important. And so you yeah. make changes. I would um, experiment in sections about pauses, too much percussion with no words versus too many words, no percussion. Because keep in mind, I'm coming at this as a percussionist, mm-hmm. not a writer, not an actor. I'm a theatrical percussionist, but that does not mean I'm an actor. Um, geez, please, to all theatrical percussionists out there. We're drummers first, man, okay? So yeah, take yeah. it easy on the acting side. And that's when I, you know, I would see like, oh, I'm doing 70% percussion in this story. And they're getting kind of antsy because mm-hmm. I'm not talking enough. So I need to find that balance. And what about between the stories? How do I banter with the audience? How do I talk to the kids? Do I ask them questions? Do I let them come up and play something? How does this all work? Mm-hmm. So you experiment. Every single time you do something different, use the old scientific method. And fortunately for me, that summer, when I had so many shows, 130 shows, there's a lot of data at your disposal. And from there, I was able to figure out how to structure a roughly 45, 50 minute assembly show for K through fifth grade or in your state, however it's done. Um, I was able to figure out how that structure works, where you put certain types of stories. And then over the years, as I've composed more and more, I put my stories into different categories. I have the shorter, groovier stories that are more surface level 
but mm-hmm. a really fun, great like uh, palate cleanser type stuff. Um, the Drunken Porter and Macbeth, right? And I have the longer, more lyrical stories that I can't put a whole. S- I can't put four of those on a show because my audience's attention will dip. Right. And then I have the sort of in between ones, the ones that are maybe shorter than the lyrical. Um, I call them pattern based ones that um, use things like additive properties. So the turnip is one of my stories where the old man can't pull the turnip up. So the old woman pulls the old man, the grandson pulls the old woman, the dog, the cat, the mouse. Right. And so the story builds. Um, And so I kind of have these categories and because I know about the structure of the assembly in terms of when the kids come in, the excitement, the middle, right? How to kind of structure that. I plot my stories in based on that. And it, it's cool. It, it sort of works and um, sort of, I guess. And now I'm up to, I think, I think by uh, January or a little after I'll, I'll hit my thousandth show um, awesome. to about 220, 230,000 kids in 10 countries uh, two CDs, three children's books, and it's growing. It's growing in other ways that I had never foreseen. Um, and it's by attaching this not to the arts, sorry, arts, <laughs> uh, ELA, English language arts. Hmm. So because my program has the storytelling side, because um, there is a, a language aspect to it, I get uh, funded in a different way because I'm not solely um, an arts entity Um, because we know how much this country loves funding the arts. It's like their favorite. They just love it so much. They're just throwing dollar bills. Yeah. Just singles. Singles only. Yeah. A lot of, lot of dimes, a lot of dimes and nickels. That's right. Yeah. But all this stuff, like, as you said, like, how did you know this or, or how did it develop? Um, I knew none of this. Mm-hmm. I created a story because I was in the avant-garde world and was pissed that no one showed up to my shows. And yeah. now it's grown to a, a full-time business. Yeah. That's Funny awesome. how things work. <laughs> so the other thing that I created is a free PDF guide. And this is through the, the Fred Rogers Institute and... The, the thing that I'm focusing on, uh, besides just, you know, performing and working with, with these students, is um, equitable arts access. So this PDF guide that I created, it has all kinds of stuff for teachers, but it's easy. It's um, their QR codes that go directly to all the videos. So every part of the program is included, but it also includes interactive games other activities, lesson plan things, craft ideas, etc. And it's uh, the Frankie the Otter PDF. It's like a supplemental guide. And I'll send it to you so maybe you can post that. But it is free and it contains everything. The reason why is I'm trying to figure out ways of getting to what I call arts deserts. You know how they have food deserts? Yeah. Arts deserts, uh, specifically places that are far enough away from a metropolitan area, which is usually where... Um, artists and um, arts programming opportunities are. Yep. So if you're far enough away from that, 
you're not going to get the same access. So I'm trying to create these guides that are free that can provide a lot of that access. Next up is Reina Lise Herrera. Reina Lise is a freelance percussionist based in Boston, currently operating her theatrical percussion company and collective, Ideas Not Theories. This year at PASIC, Reina Lise is part of the PAS Diversity Alliance panel called Percussion is for Everybody, Neurodivergent Percussionists. The panel will be moderated by Olivia Kiefer and will also include panelists Kalani Das, Scott Farkas, and Sean Neely. This will take place Friday at 1 p.m. in Room 201. Here's Reina Lise discussing her contributions to this upcoming panel. Who came up with this being the topic that the PIS Diversity Committee wanted to cover? I actually was invited to be a part of the panel by, uh, by Elizabeth Delamater. Mm-hmm. Uh, she reached out to me and invited me. Um, I'm I'm not sure exactly who came up with the idea, but I'm guessing she's like one of the the people who came up with the idea. Yeah, she she's seen me like kind of like talk about my experiences, and I think um, that's why she reached out to me, partly. But yeah, but I think it's great because you don't see that a lot in in you know now. Like I think it's start you're starting to see that. Uh, come out in different, you know, organizations or institutions, but it's, yeah, it's great. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I, you know, that term, I don't know if it's new or if it's just more, people are more aware of that term. Mm -hmm. Uh, I feel like I've only known about it for a few years. It's, but what's your sense of that term? No, that's interesting. I actually read the, I think it started, the, the term started in the 90s. So it's not like super new, a 98, I don't, something like that, 96. Um, I'm not sure why it, it's been more present now, like the term itself right now. I think it, it might be just like, because in general, people are more aware of, of you know, our differences and our, of, just general mental health and all, all of those things. And I think maybe that's part of it. Uh, and people are kind of like growing to be more accepting and more inclusive in general. So that might be it. I also myself like only heard of the term a, a few years ago. And and it, it's funny because like immediately I, I was like this, like I related a lot with it. And even before the term existed, I, I kind of knew I was neuro- neurodivergent. Aside from the fact that I had, like, I know now I have some, like, that uh, ADHD or OCD and stuff. But, like, just in general, just the, the general concept of it. When you discovered that, or at least it, it you you heard that and you're like, that's, I know what that is. <laughs> or what when did, what was that? Like yeah. to figure that out. I'm gonna explain it two different ways. One is 
So let's, if, if we think about like what is neuro, neurodivergency, it's hard to, to, to say. <laughs> it's basically just people who, whose brains or minds are wired differently or work differently, right? That's basically kind of like the bottom um, general explanation. Uh, but then you, you, uh, it's common to have neurodivergent people who also have diagnosis of, um, different conditions like ADHD, autism, um, dyslexia, et cetera. Uh, and some people might not have diagnosis. So, um, for me, I think like, I, I mean, I identify with the term in two different for two different reasons. One is I always felt I was different and always felt kind of like my, my mind worked differently and, 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 um, yeah, I was kind of wired differently and yeah, I always kind of felt that way. So when I, 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 um, heard the term and read more about it, like, like I completely like, I was like, that's me. And, and, and it's, it's a good feeling, at least for me. Um, and, but also like, the last years I have been discovering conditions I have like, like OCD and ADHD. So it kind of all goes together. So it kind of like, yeah, and this, you know, like those two things. So, and I'm still learning more about it. It's kind of intriguing, you know, and cause you learn about yourself and how you interact with the world and how you work and, and you go back and think about things that happened before or like, why you do the work you do or like why you do this or that and, and kind of explains different things. So, yeah. Regarding the panel, were there questions sent out ahead of time or was this kind of a, I don't want to jump too much on what you're going to do, but, <laughs> yeah. but I mean, was there like a, did they prep and say kind of focus on these areas or, or is it mostly meant to be kind of a share what share experiences? We'll see what happens when we, Right. So I think it's kind of like a combination of both. Like uh, each panelist is going to have an opportunity to introduce ourselves and share about our experiences. And each of us also kind of chose a, a particular kind of uh, topic or focus that we want to highlight about our experience. So that's going to be cool and interesting because each of us kind of chose very different things to talk about. Um in my, I'm not going to give away too much, but on my side, I'm going to talk about a little bit about how I see my neurodivergency expressed through my musical work and, and my creations and things like that. And, and the other panelists will talk about other things. So, and, but also half of the time, we're also going to receive questions uh, apart from the audience. So that, that'll be able to ask just in the moment. But also we have, uh, we're taking questions in advance. So there's going to be a QR code in the Paz Diversity Alliance booth. Your People will be able to find a QR code and submit their questions like um, as soon as basic starts. And additionally, there is a link uh, that one of the panelists, Sean, created for a Google Doc where people can actually start submitting questions now. I can um, send you the link after this and if you want to share it. But um, yeah, so it'll be fun. People will be able to 
um, hear both things, our experience and also ask questions. So you're going to talk about how it's um, it's being your neurodivergency is showing up in your kind of your compositions and your your work there. Is there some way that it has in terms of your training where that you could tell that you had to do you had to work in a different way so that you could be successful you know right yeah no it's interesting and that's kind of like one of the things i'm going to talk about because i didn't know this at the time exactly like what was going on but i did take a big turn in my in my you know career or, or kind of like right after I finished my graduate studies of what I wanted to do because I felt frustrated and, and kind of like like I wasn't a, able to express myself looking back at the time I oh I usually just say like I was just that frustrated couldn't express myself wanted to kind of find my voice but looking back it probably had to do with me, my neurodivergency and just kind of like I was maybe trying to fit in in a mold that I didn't fit in and I was trying to make a new mold for myself in a way uh, and and express myself as I am, which part of it is being neurodivergent. So, yeah, I think what you're saying is kind of what I mean, I don't know if that what you were trying to say, but yeah. Yeah. And I'm wondering how, if this is going to happen with this year's panel, but I always find that these, one of the things I really enjoy about the Diversity Alliance panels is that it's one of the few times I feel like there's a little bit, people are slightly uncomfortable (laughs) because the topics are more serious because I think the emotion is a little little bit more real in ways that it's not manufactured. It's not like a, like, like people really get into it, which is what I which is why I always enjoy it partially because some so much of PASIC is very just like shaking hands and taking pictures, <laughs> yeah. quick meetings. And then here we are like really getting into it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's true. Yeah. Yeah. It's more like, yeah, there is a lot of realness about it and yeah, yeah authenticity. Yeah. I I meant to mention this, but mm-hmm. I, I guess I forgot. I would like to mention the other panelists. Yeah, name. please do. Yep. So uh, the mod- moderator is going to be Dr. Olivia Kiefer mm-hmm. and the other panelists along myself are going to be Sean Neely, Kalani Das and Scott Farkas. So, yeah, so come and, and, and join us. Yes. <laughs> I encourage people to ask questions or submit their questions at the booth. I'll send you the link later. Um, each, like I said, each person is going to talk about a particular topic. I, I mentioned what my topic is. I know, for example, Sean Neely is going to talk about his autism and the work and research that he does uh, with his autism and percussion. Um, I think Scott Farkas is going to talk about ADHD and the work he does with that. So, um, yeah, people will get to, to hear a lot of different experiences. So, yeah. And lastly, for the 2023 PASIC preview, we get to Matt Henry, a previous podcast guest from 2017 who teaches percussion at the University of Missouri-St. Louis. 
Matthew will also be presenting a fun Dementals Clinic through the Education Committee, this one titled Settling the Score, Culturally Informed Adaptations of Non-Western Percussion Parts in Published Choral, Orchestra, Band, and Chamber Ensemble Works. He'll be presenting this on Saturday at 1 p.m. in Room 205. Here's Matthew talking about his upcoming presentation. Tell me the genesis. Why why do you need to present this? Well, in my experience, you know, the last 15 years, I guess, I've kind of devoted to study of uh, Afro-Cuban traditions, folkloric, and the history therein, as well as Jimbe Orchestra, so Malenke ethnic group, primarily from West Africa. And uh, I've had a lot of clinics and presentations at schools or people calling me, you know, can you help out with this jazz band piece interpretation? Can you help out with, we need a percussionist for the Allstate Choir or even at the university where I teach, you know, we're doing concerts where there's a choir piece that calls for djembe or some congas or it's Cuban or or African, uh, which is kind of troublesome because Africa is very, Latin. very big. <laughs> or Latin. Or Latin. Right? Yeah. Or Latin. Um, And I've just seen a growing gap in music educators' kind of knowledge about what they should do, not the the need for it. I mean, the need is there and the want and the desire to do pieces that include uh, cultural inference, right? Um, But when the parts, they get the parts in and they're not quite sure what to do or they're not even quite sure what some of the instruments are that are listed there, uh, first and foremost. So I've done a couple of presentations at the statewide level, the Music Educators Convention, specifically one for jazz band, you know, last year, what do you do with that third, the second percussionist, second or third percussionist on these quote-unquote Latin charts, and examined a lot of pieces that were out there and editors' picks on these websites, and just saw lots of kind of discrepancies between what the piece is listed as and when I look at the score, what it actually is, you know. Right. Um so that that is a thing that that I've kind of become more passionate about the past few years is is making sure that in this drive of of inclusivity that we're in these days which is great and the diversity equity inclusion part of things how can we as the users of this published music um you just make it more culturally informed and culturally sound you know how how can we do that on the user end because a lot of times we're supposed to be able to trust the publishers and the composers and all of those things. Um, but it's out, you know, we, we can't always, and I've seen evidence of that. So I guess that was the big push here is, is not to convict anybody, but to, to, you know, to, to say, how can, you know, we want to have all these pieces that include quote unquote world percussion and cultures and pay homage to the cultures. How can we make sure that we're really doing that and not, appropriate on the appropriation side, you know, and so make sure that that we pay a little more respect to to uh, the cultures that are trying supposedly being represented in these published works. You, you were kind of over, you know, kind of given the overview there. But yeah. when when someone gets a part and they are asked, like, let's say on the Latin side. Yeah. You know, what, what's the most common thing that either maybe you see if you adjudicate or when you when you watch other bands or things you're like i bet they could they could use my help 
Well, I think one of the things that I see just specifically with the publications, probably the the most ubiquitous mistake that's made is calling something uh, a Latin chart. And people think that that means Caribbean. But when I look at the bass line and the drum part notated and the horns and, and the piano part, it's Brazilian. It's a samba or it's a bossa nova. Uh, and those musics and cultures are quite different. And um, that's the biggest one that I see out there. And when I did that specifically jazz band arrangement one, that was all over the place where the bass lines, you know, this isn't a cha-cha, it's a, it's a bossa. So I see that. And I, I think in general, it's just, you know, as drum set players, we have books out there that, you know, give us one bar representations of here's what you play on a mambo. Here's right. what you play on a cha-cha. Here's what you play on a samba and a bassa. And so we have one measure that we play over and over. right? right. <laughs> and, yeah. and, and, and we try to fit it in with the hits here and there. So I think the biggest thing for us as educators to impart to young players is that uh, we think about these as more of a fluid concept idea. What type of uh, language are you speaking on the drums? And people talk about that with jazz all the time, right? With comping on the snare drum and, you know, we got to be able to improvise bass drum and snare drum and get these hits in there. We have to do that in the other styles too. Uh, so that's the biggest thing for me is that we're not playing one bar rhythms over and over that we can kind of flex and we have different ideas uh, moving forward. So when I talk to young drum set players, that's the biggest thing is, is first and foremost, what are you trying to play? And secondly, is what you're doing providing comfort for the band? You know, that's a lot of well, the, the second thing is when you think about quote unquote Latin charts, um, everybody always thinks, oh, it's syncopated like crazy. I got to play this really difficult thing and incorporate these toms and, and do all this stuff when that doesn't provide comfort for the band, when they're also trying to interpret some rhythms maybe they haven't seen before and articulations and, you know, the syncopation that's included in their part. So that's the thing for me is, first of all, we need to back down the what we think of as the complex things and the busyness that we're playing and parse that down and, and, and make sure that we're providing rhythmic support that's comfortable. That's probably the biggest thing, yeah. And the second one, not playing drum set, is what do you do? You know, a lot of jazz bands and, and ensembles in general have more than one drum set player. So when they get a Latin chart or something like that, they want to have a shaker or some maracas or they have, you know, they go back to the percussion cabinet and they just dig something out. They're like, oh, yeah, let's get some toys, right, <laughs> and, yeah. and start playing them. So uh, I guess it's, for me, too, one of my big pushes in these presentations that I'm giving is, not only do you have to think about the rhythms that you're playing, but you have to think about what instrument you're choosing. So if this is under the Brazilian kind of scope, which is generally sambas and bosses, you should not be using maracas or a Cuban guiro or a cowbell. You know, you should use a go-go bells and tube shakers and maybe even a triangle in there or a pandero, or, you know, a hepique, something like that that gives us the entrance of the sound. Um, and generally speaking, you know, in the percussion cabinets, there's cowbells and there's probably going to be a set of a go-go bells and a guiro, maybe a cabasa and tube shakers and maracas. And, and so when should we choose those for which specific style? That's the other thing. Yeah. 
Now, on the West African side, sure. When you're dealing that, and I would, my guess would be that more of that would probably be on the um, choir. Yeah. If like if you're playing with choir and there's like an African percussion stuff. Yeah. So what are the what are the kinds of the roadblocks or things that people will just kind of try to do? Yeah, well, I think that you know the djembe has become the most popular West African drum. Yeah. Subsequently, it's spread out to become the most popular African drum, right? And so that's when people think, okay, this is African. Let's get that djembe that's over in the corner of the choir room. You know, they have a Remo djembe or an LP djembe or something like that that's there. Let's do some stuff with that, which is is fine. But a lot of times some of this stuff is South African or different ethnic groups that aren't or even different places in West Africa be from Ghana, right? Yeah. So we might want to choose different instruments there. Sometimes we have to just do the best we can, right? Yeah. And, that, and I'm going to talk about that in this clinic too. There's Sometimes there's not a whole lot that you can do, um, but we can certainly read the description of the piece. What does it say? Is it referencing a specific culture or is it just say African dream, and there's no, you know, it doesn't say this is based Latin on carnival. Right, right, right. Something like that. Um, and maybe it doesn't even say anything about Africa at all. It just says optional percussion. So at that point, what you know, maybe there's not, not much we should do. Right. For me, it's the focus on the pieces that specifically cite a culture, an ethnic group or a country, uh, an area. And then at that point, we should be making more educated choices as to as to maybe how we adapt the parts or the instruments that we choose. So as it says, this is um, a song from Mali, and the instruments included in the score are bass, drum, and congas. Maybe we, let's let's alter that, right? I know the composer said bass, drum, and congas, but this says Mali. The text yeah. is from, you know, maybe some sort of Malian folk song, supposedly, who knows? But we can then okay. Let's don't let's play djembe instead of congas, and maybe let's play dunun or some type of low tom sound rather than a big boomy bass drum. You know, to, to make make the dununs more present. So a lot of times it's it's a matter of having the knowledge first and foremost to know what instrument families you should be choosing from, um, and then secondly, how can you comfortably make decisions to alter the piece to make it entertaining still and educational, you know, and sometimes that's having a conversation with the audience before the piece goes or putting something in the program notes, or there's a lot of ways that this can be done without completely disrespecting the composition, you know, and the composer. Yeah. Um, for me though, honestly, making decisions as performers and players, we do that all the time in the Western classical tradition. Do you play a, a thumb roll or a shake roll? Do you play a closed, do you play closed drags, open drags? Like what's the, you know, do you, is it supposed to sound like more of a, a marching snare drum? Maybe you'll play open drags or more orchestra, you'll play close. So you make those choices a lot. We make choices about hardness of mallets, depending on context, you know? And um, I mean, we, there are some pretty hardcore people out there that, that play period instruments. Yeah. So should we play Beethoven with timpani pedals? I mean, I do. Yeah. Like, <laughs> I want that, right? We have we have technology and information and things that have changed that we utilize all the time. Um, and I think that it's the 
the quote-unquote world music that hasn't caught up yet because historically that hasn't been focused on. Right. Right? So in the last 20 years, there's been a real big more push with more people going out and studying with culture bearers and writing grants to to understand this music and teach it and all those things. So now we're really at the point where I think we need to hold uh, publishers more accountable. We need to hold composers more accountable. Um, but we, the, how, how to start that is at the level of performance. I, I'm glad you brought up the publishers and composers part, because obviously that gets into not just representation, but at times appropriation, yeah. and, you know, who's writing and, do you feel like as a if a performer if you get a piece and you're and it seems like there's a mismatch between who wrote it and this yeah. culture what do you, what do you feel like is the kind of the right move in that situation I mean that kind of gets a little hard you know and that gets gets a little sticky here too because in that presentation I did for the Missouri Music Educators State Conference I had a spreadsheet that listed all the top editors' picks from the top publishers' websites and I remember music yeah. distributed. Yeah, oh yeah, you were there. I was there. And, yeah, it was a fantastic. And some, and some yeah. pretty well-known composers and arrangers. <clears throat> and I cited, you know, in red, like this is a problem in this piece. Yeah. And people know that. People know these composers and arrangers. And again, I'm not trying to convict out here, but yeah, we, we need to be. Um, making some of these adjustments on our end and how, how do you handle it? I mean, one is, is you don't buy that piece. Right. You know, and uh, secondly, you know, it's kind of, there's a lot of pieces out there in the research I've been doing the last couple of years for these presentations. I mean, I came across one the other day that's on a major publisher's website that's called Jungle Jive. Wow. And it's just like, to unpack what? that, that is, title. This, is this still happening? Like, or do we have this out here? You know, or it's just like these titles that sometimes make a play on. Um, there was one for Jasmine. I can't remember now, but um, like Gringo Burrito or something <laughs> like that, you know, and it's oh like, my oh, my gosh. Wow. So I think that what we should do is we should seek out composers and arrangers that we can tell have knowledge. And yeah. so through these presentations, I've found some really great representations of people that are doing really good stuff out there. And it could be chamber music. It could be orchestras, could band, choirs, uh, jazz ensembles. You know, uh, you come across these pieces and we can share it. And we can share that information. Say, hey, maybe instead of looking at these 10 composers and arrangers that everybody knows, check out Michelle Fernandez. She's out of right. Miami, like doing this great stuff. And, and, you know, all these other people that are, that are composing different pieces. And you can tell by looking at the notes and how the piece is composed and the specifics and the percussion parts, specifically the terminology that's maybe used in there. Wow. This person kind of really knows what they're doing. And that person is accessible. You can email them. Right. You know, reach out to them and say, hey, I, this is really interesting in this piece of music. What's going on? It's not like somebody that's just churning out arrangements and churning and churning. And, you know, um, maybe that was a bit convoluted of an answer. <laughs> but, but, yeah. Yeah. No, I I, I think you, you did well with that. Some uh, people came up to me afterwards and were like, man, this piece that you cited, like, I've... I, 
I love that piece, and and you you're saying it's wrong. I'm saying, well, I'm just saying there's some cultural dissonance between what's supposedly represented and what's on the page. Right. I'm not trying again. I'm not trying to <laughs> like convict people. I'm yeah, just yeah. presenting the facts. You make the choice for yourself. But I remember I was trying to remember, and I'm glad you said Michelle Fernandez's name because I remember yeah. that we you talked about her a lot and showed examples of kind of how she's do how she's very clearly put thought into yeah. how to, how to play and how to accompany the works that she's doing yeah. uh, in the ways that you are, it, you know, on the education side, because you said this is an education presentation, was there anything specific in the charge of what you, what basic, what PAS wants uh, for this type of presentation that makes it either different or you were adjusting things to make it fit? No, I mean, I think I submitted um, to the education committee, I, I submitted two clinics this year. I usually, when I submit to PASIC, I do two, you know, one for maybe the world percussion side that's more of a, a playing clinic or a demonstration clinic or something like that, and then one for the education, which is more informational. And um, so the education one came through this year, and I think it's clear that's what they wanted. They accepted it on the description and and what I was saying in it. Um, I think a lot of people, when I've talked to about what the, what the topic is and, and they're like, oh man, this is so needed because I'm not the, I mean, I'm not alone in these experiences. You've experienced it. Everybody at every university that, that is a percussion instructor has experienced it. When the choir comes up with this piece and you look at the parts like, oh gosh, these parts are super cheesy. We could, we could do something to make it better. And I think that's what we need to do. And of course, jazz bands, they all the time, right? They, you know, they have all the, the swing charts and they might have a funk chart and, chart and then they want a Latin chart. Yeah. You know, yeah. so so they put it in there uh, to include it. And I commend people for including that and wanting to do it. And, and this is just kind of about the push to make things better. And I think that's what PAS wants. You know, I mean, we have the committee the the diversity equity inclusion committee now and we you know we have all of these things that it's clear we as a group want to make these changes and we want to make things better so i think that was probably what was attractive about it it's not a clinic promoting me or what i've been doing or my performing which is not necessarily bad but this sure. is a you know it's more of a clinic to to give information out there that people can take with them and say okay this is how we can make piece is better when we come across a piece that has um, a specific culture cited we can look at the parts and we can look at you know what's going on in the score and we can say okay maybe we'll this kind of looks like cuckoo from you know djembe orchestra traditions yeah, yeah. or mm -hmm. or it kind of looks like this is more cuban uh feeling and it feels more like a cha-cha let's incorporate some of those instruments and, and do it and, and maybe talk to the audience beforehand that, you know, we, we're including some more instruments from this culture for your enjoyment and edification. <laughs> you know, like, yeah. 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 I'm planning to have some physical handouts and it's going to be all available for the QR code that people can take and reference. And that's the kind of the point of this is, is to demonstrate some things in person uh, and talk about how everybody there can go home and they can, you know, look at these scores and, and the things that I'm looking at, which just aren't necessarily just the percussion part. Sometimes it's the, it's the context as well. 
And they can come back and reference, you know, say, okay, so we have these maybe three options for djembe orchestra music. And I'm going to give them some stuff from uh, respected and vetted sources that you can go back and look at this. Here's one with that's trip, two that are triplet-based, two that are binary. And if you pull any of those parts out of the binaries, now you're much closer to representing that culture than you would have been if you just pulled it out of thin air, you know? Yeah. Um, so I think that's the first step is giving people resources that are vetted, that they know they can count on, that are legit. And, and that's the other thing, too. There's a whole lot of stuff out there uh, in our information age that that YouTube is a wonderful place, but it's also the worst place in the world at the same time. You know? right. Yeah, if you look up how to play congas on YouTube, careful now. <laughs> <laughs> So great to have gotten a chance to hear from Corey, Renalis, and Matthew on these interviews for part two. Like yesterday, I think you'll all really enjoy these panels and presentations, and I hope you attend. Like yesterday, no real rave this week, aside from just telling you to attend PASIC if you're able to. You'll be very glad that you did. As mentioned yesterday, if you find me, please say hello and let's chat. And if you've been on my show, then we definitely need to make sure we connect. Many of you already know the drill, so see you all in Indy. And that's our show. Subscribe to the podcast on Apple Podcasts or leave a comment and a rating. You can always find every episode and the show notes at the homepage at PeteZambito.com slash Pete's Percussion Podcast, the episodes. The show is also on SoundCloud and Spotify and many other podcast locations. If you're on Facebook, like the page Pete's Percussion Podcast, you can find me there on Instagram and Twitter at Pete Zambito or by email at Pete'sPerkPod at gmail.com. And I'll catch you next time or hopefully later this week. Until then.